Welcome to Growing E-Commerce. I'm your host, Mike Ryan of Smarter E-Commerce. If it's your first time listening, welcome. And if you're a regular listener, you'll recognize that we've changed the name and the look of this podcast. But how the podcast sounds remains largely the same. It's all about conversational interviews with leaders in digital marketing and e-commerce growth. Today, I'm joined by Sean McGinnis, President and Integrator at Kuru, a direct consumer footwear company. Have a look at his resume and you'll see that Sean's career has been about innovation since day one. And now he's bringing a focus on testing and learning to D2C operations. I got to know Sean on Twitter and he's an open book in the best way, really smart and genuine. We're going to talk about replatforming in e-commerce, why D2C is flirting with brick and mortar, and what on earth is going on with Facebook ads. All right, let's get into it. So, Sean, thanks for joining us today. Would you get us started with a quick overview of your career? seems like you've done a lot of things over the years. And yeah, what were some of the, the ups and downs along the way? Yeah, happy to. So uh, I have a pretty non-traditional path to digital marketing leadership, I think you'd say. I have an undergrad degree in acting and a law degree. I spent the first uh, 10 plus years of my career selling legal research services to attorneys across the country here in the United States. And in the later part of that phase of my career, a couple things happened. Um, I've always been a bit of a home movie buff, and I wrote my first uh, website back in, I think, 1996. We were reviewing DVDs when it was a brand new technology to the consumer space. And also along the way, we started selling websites and marketing services to small law firms across the country. So that became a kind of a passion project of mine or a special interest. I became one of the top salespeople in the country within the larger organization um, selling the, that, that book of business into law firms. And we spun that whole business out. A few years later, they were looking for someone to come in-house and lead the SEO team. And so that was my kind of first digital marketing role. I came in sort of over the top. I had um, a fair amount of SEO knowledge and um, inherited a team of 19 SEO consultants inside the business and kind of moved into marketing, sort of slid in sideways, almost a little bit of a power slide, I guess you'd say. So spent most of the next several years kind of in the B2B marketing um, and, and specifically in the legal space, I eventually took a role at Sears with the express purpose from my perspective of picking up um, some paid channel experience, moving into e-commerce to kind of test whether I really enjoyed e-commerce or not, and really did. I had a great time at Sears, really enjoyed my time there and, and sort of um, building out that different skill set and exercising that muscle was recruited away from Sears to come out here to Salt Lake City to lead up fairly large digital agency, kind of a hybrid agency, almost like a super affiliate business model. So I uh, had a team of about 150 or so folks that built 30 websites on behalf of 15 or so clients. And we spent our money in media to drive traffic to websites that we controlled and then fed you into a call center that we owned and operated. But we would sign you up for these home services um, home security systems, internet, telephone, uh, TV services, et cetera. So direct TV and AT&T um, phone and internet. And then uh, found my way over here to Kuru Footwear about two and a half years ago. Re- found that I really missed e-commerce and, and really missed uh, that kind of direct connection to the consumer. So have really enjoyed my time here. So that's kind of been the long and short of the five minute career. Yeah, I mean that's super interesting. Like the even the that that DVD experience early on. I'm super innovative space at that time. So that that's really interesting. And also having a team of um 
19 consultants in, in SEO at that time as well. That's a Seems like a pretty big te- team of SEO consultants back then. By the way, I noticed on your on your resume on uh, LinkedIn that you were you were working at a company in metal detection at one point as well. Yeah, there was a year of stint. Uh, I, I fell in with a, a through a good friend of mine with a, a private equity group that had been acquiring some businesses along the way, and one of their first uh, acquisitions was a metal detecting retailer um, that was a family owned business at the time. And I um, had joined that business in, in an effort to try and grow it back to its kind of former glory. Fun business, really passionate user group, you know, really just a fascinating space. I learned an awful lot about Magento over there. I had no okay. real Magento experience before jumping in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I found my way back here to Salt Lake and uh, joined Kuru about October 2019. Yeah. Well, I want to follow up with you about Magento later. But that's something I was thinking with metal detection about that user group and that consumer profile. They must, it's totally passionate. And you're in, you're in really a special niche now as well at Kuru. Um, Cause it's, it's not just footwear, is it? It's you, you, tell us a bit about kind of the mission at, uh, at Kuru. Oh, um, sorry. One more thing. I, I, I'd be really interested. So your title at Kuru now is, is president and integrator. Um, mm-hmm. You moved from the CMO position. And I'm curious too about the, this integrator title, um, what that represents for, for you and for Kuru. But first, yeah. tell us about Kuru. Thanks. Um, so Kuru Footwear is a specialty um, shoe manufacturer that helps consumers with foot pain. Our founder and CEO, Brett Rasmussen, invented some technology back uh, between 2006 and 2008. Ultimately, he patented that technology. The initial kind of uh, thesis of the business was he just wanted to make a better shoe. He wasn't really trying to, uh, he didn't set out to solve for a foot pain problem. It just turns out that the technology that he invented genuinely does help with foot pain, um, particularly plantar fasciitis and any other kind of foot pain around the heel. But he invented a, kind of a whole system, and and the the our Kuru sole technology is a, a, a special piece of plastic that sits embedded inside of the the foam of the midsole, and the more pressure you put on it, the more it supports your heel. So it conforms to the shape of your heel. Most, if you if you were to cut open most pairs of sneakers or shoes, they're flat on the inside. In fact, when you go to manufacture a shoe, the manufacturing process manufactures it around kind of a model, a mold of a human foot. And almost every manufacturer, their mold, it's called the last, that's flat on the bottom. When we make our shoes, we insist that the mold actually be shaped like a human foot. It drives manufacturers crazy because it's harder to um, build around something that's not stable right? Yeah. The human foot is, is technically kind of not stable, right? It's rounded on the bottom. If you take a look at your foot, it's obvious it's not a flat surface. Um, and so when you when you think about the way I always think about it in a very simplistic way, anytime a, a, a sphere or a round um, piece of material comes in contact with a flat surface, that sphere is the thing that gives, right? Mm-hmm. Think about a golf ball on the face of a golf club or a basketball bouncing against the floor or a tennis ball or anything mm-hmm. like that baseball off of a, a baseball bat. The thing that compresses is the ball. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, and that's kind of what happens to your foot over time, right? So imagine as an adult a human, millions and millions of foot strikes. And what happens is the, the little um, nat- nature shock absorber that sits below your heel bone tends to degrade and compress over time. And Kuru Soul technology dynamically uh, supports and cups and, and protects that 
that natural shock absorber. So we put your body in a position to heal itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so the business has been around since 2008. He launched it right in the middle of the financial crisis. The original plan was a very traditional business model. He had orders from retailers. He was mm-hmm. you know, exhibiting at the outdoor retailer show. Um, and when Lehman Brothers declared bankruptcy, all those retailers pulled their orders and we went mm-hmm. and pivoted into a direct-to-consumer model. Oh, that's so the, really interesting. the second part of your question about the integrator title. So uh, we run Kuru Footwear using a system called EOS, uh, which stands for the Entrepreneurial Operating System. That's based on a book called Traction. So if you go to Amazon, you search up a book, a book Traction. Um, it's a, a really brilliant system that a lot of kind of small businesses are finding their way to and utilizing. It's uh, it's six major components. And that, that system... Um, advocates for sort of a two-headed monster to kind of run the business. They they call it the visionary and the integrator are the two words that they use. And so the visionary is usually the founder, not always, uh, but that's usually a person who's thinking a little bit longer term. They're thinking five to 10 years out. They're thinking about product innovation roadmap. They're thinking about big relationships. Culture is usually a big one that they tend to own. The integrator is the person that kind of runs the day-to-day. I kind of can think of myself as like an orchestra conductor, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I report to our CEO and everyone else in the business kind of rolls up into me. So I have, you know, the finance department, our product department, e-com department, marketing, all those functions kind of report into me. And so I'm managing the day-to-day financial decisions around what, where, where we're going to go, what are the growth pathways, et cetera, et cetera. That frees him up to be a little more strategic and forward thinking. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting model. Um, Thanks for letting me know about that. And it's so interesting also the way that the company stumbled into D2C as a business model. I, I, I've got a couple questions that come to my mind just quickly. Like I could imagine that, let, I'll make a metaphor here. If like the, the BI tools out there, if the, one of their biggest competitors would be like spreadsheets, for example. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering, do you, do you face competition from like the insole market from like a Dr. Scholl's type product or, or, or what's that kind of competitive market like in a, in a niche like this? Yeah, it's really fascinating. When you ask, or it depends on which customer segment you ask and kind of how you phrase the question, right? Mm-hmm. So if you think about all of the different alternatives, and we do think of all the different alternatives because the framework that we think of when we think about um, supporting our customers and then developing product in support of their needs is a, a product development framework called Jobs to be Done. Mm-hmm. So we're constantly thinking about what is our customer hiring us to do? And who are the competing alternatives or what are the things that they could also hire to get that some similar semblance of that job completed for them? Sometimes it's as extreme as surgery. Sometimes it's just an after aftermarket shoe insert, like a Dr. Scholl's, or there's plenty of others that are on the, on the, the in the D2C space as well, even. So that's an option. The flip side of foot pain relief is really kind of a comfort story. So there's you know, m- many very large brands that are kind of well-known or at least thought of or, and, and considered as a comfort story shoe. Everything from Skechers to New Balance, you know, the main sort of performance shoes are also an, an usually in the consideration set. So when we ask our customers, who else did you consider before you bought Kuru? We get a lot of stories around Adidas and Nike and New Balance, et cetera, just because they're so well-known. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple of other brands that I think of as kind of our main competitors, you know, many of whom are a couple of whom did get their start in more kind of pure D to C play. 
when I think of what we do and, and the space or the category that we live in, I think of stylish shoes for foot pain, right? If you think about a Venn diagram, typically stylish shoes are not really foot pain relief shoes mm-hmm. and foot pain relief shoes are usually not very stylish. And mm-hmm. so I like to think the crew kind of lives in that sliver where those two Venn diagram circles overlap a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great strategy. Reminds me a little bit of like the, of, of Tesla kind of ungeeking the the electric car or something or showing the electric car could have power and and, and be stylish and stuff like sure. that. Sure. But when I look at your at the product taxonomy, like in your your website navigation, for example, um, I get the feeling that you're really close to your consumers um, because you'll see kind of typical breakdowns like um, styles or product lines. You'll see um, the categories like a running shoe, this kind of kind of shoe, but then you also see um, these really sort of personal attributes, like very specific foot pains listed there. Um, also occupations, like, are you a teacher? Are you a chef? All, all kinds of things like this. So do, do you think that that's, that's an area that, that kind of personalization or getting closer to the consumer? Yeah, the way I think of it, we haven't taken it to the kind of personalization level, but I do think it has kind of an effect of almost a subtle personalization hint. Um, we definitely hear from customers when we do talk to them of like, oh, this, this, this uh, brand really gets me, right? Like I didn't know, I didn't even know you could shop by that specific methodology, right? The way I think of that taxonomy and the, and the navigational structure is what we're doing is we're creating these kind of micro funnels that are reinforcing, you know, we can send clicks from a, a non-branded paid search event for shoes for plantar fasciitis, for example, to a plantar fasciitis landing page, mm. to a gendered plantar fasciitis category that reinforces, these are the shoes that we know support um, healing your, your foot pain that's related to plantar fasciitis, right? So there's some subtle uh, visual cues. And uh, when you navigate to those category pages, we we do a brief couple of paragraph introduction about how our technology helps with specifically plantar fasciitis. And then we reinforce it with a a customer review that we've pulled out from one of the shoes where the customer expressly talks about the fact that the, this specific shoe helped with them with their plantar fasciitis issue. Right. And then we get into a typical kind of a collection page or a category listing of these are the shoes that we're actually recommending for plantar fasciitis. So that, what that does is it creates dozens and dozens of kind of micro funnels, right? Mm-hmm. We can take you from a, a, an ad set or a specific messaging, whether that's in Facebook or it's in paid search or shopping, we can drive you through and, and sort of have a little bit of a sense of cohesion, right? And when it, what that has done is it's been a pretty meaningful impact from a conversion rate perspective. We've done about four or five things since I arrived two and a half years ago that have had, you know, really dramatically improved our conversion rate across that time frame. That was one of the things that was, we didn't set out to do that. It was just more along the lines of, originally, honestly, it was an SEO play from my perspective. Was, okay. you know, th- these are the ways that, that when I think about customers and having talked to them that they're shopping for our product, it's you kind of hit on it. It's a specific type of foot pain. It's a specific activity. I need a comfortable pair of shoes for walking or I need a comfortable pair of shoes for gardening or hiking or what have you. Or it's, hey, I've got a job and because that the very nature of that job, I'm on my feet all day and I'm going to be more likely to come home with foot pain or foot fatigue. And I'm going to be looking for a solution for, you know, comfortable shoes for nurses, comfortable shoes for teachers, comfortable shoes for retail workers. Right. Um, And so we wanted to be able to tell those stories both visually and and with words across all those kind of three different vectors. So it's a little bit of playing three-dimensional chess, or we like to think that we're trying to do that, but to what degree it's really successful, it's hard to say. 
Well, I, I like that. Yeah, maybe not personalization, but as as you're describing it, this really kind of faceted targeting um, becomes possible. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I'm just wondering if there's anything kind of special that comes up with with launching products in this space compared to other spaces you've worked in, or direct to consumer versus um, versus uh, you know retail spaces. Yeah, it's fascinating. I'm. We're having this debate internally quite a bit because as we talked about, I did not come in through a traditional marketing channel. So I'm not a classically trained marketer, right? Mm -hmm. The way I think of um, my relationship with marketing, I'm just, I'm a very, I'm a tool. (laughs) Uh, My brain is a tool and I'm a very functional marketer is kind of the way we refer to it in-house, right? And so like the whole notion of trying to build a bunch of excitement and awareness for a product, I'm kind of like, whatever, like let's put it on the site when it's right when we get in the warehouse and we'll blast an email out to our existing customers announcing the fact that we've just launched this new shoe and it's pretty cool, right? Like, yeah. and and they're going to come back if they like the look and feel of it, they're going to buy it. If if they don't, they don't. Like, is there a need to try and tell a four month story about how incredibly we went innovated this thing? Like, what we're really doing is we're we're pushing our um, innovative technology into a new style of shoes. And that is really trying to solve a different job to be done for our customers, right? If they need, for example, if we made the decision to go make a work boot with a fiberglass toe reinforced, like that's a whole new category that we would be pushing into. We've had that request from lots and lots of customers. Not everybody's going to need that shoe, right? And so like, you're not going to, you can't create demand for that, but you can let people know in that space that have foot pain that, hey, there's a new, pl- there's a new sheriff in town and there's a new way that you can think about how you can actually solve this different type of foot pain. Um, so I, we're having that debate and we're got, definitely going to go test that around what's the right strategy for launching a new shoe. Mm-hmm. Uh, since I've been here, we've launched something like six new styles and we have three new ones coming out this year. So mm-hmm. Um, hard concentration on sandals for us this this specific year, and then next year we'll pivot and launch some new styles and boots and a few other categories. And um, it's been a really exciting time from that perspective because a lot of those new styles have been really strong performers for us. But it hasn't come at the expense of some fancy video campaign, for example, kind of telling the product innovation roadmap story or anything like that. It's just been like new new style, new category, new colors. Here we go. You know, yeah. we've got a very loyal um, list of folks that. Can't wait to come back and shop everything new that we bring to the to the market because we helped take away their foot pain and that creates a lot of loyalty. Yeah, definitely. I think that there's this element of like um, really gratitude in, in there. I could imagine. Well, that, that's really interesting. I want to I want to pull out some things. So you know, we're I, I follow you on Twitter and uh, I. <laughs> Sorry about uh, that. <laughs> No, I'm so glad. Actually, I kind of, I kind of recently, like basically this year, I kind of started getting into the the D2C Twitter and it's such a great community. Like people are really open and sharing a lot of stuff on there. So at any rate though, um, something that jumped out to me, I I saw that you decided recently to maybe about a month ago to replatform from Magento to Shopify. So I guess I'm curious about what motivated that? You mentioned Magento earlier that you've got experience there. Um, um, I don't know to what extent Shopify is new for you, but like what ex- what expectations do you have in the end um, in, in a replatforming like that? Yeah, we, we've been dis- discussing and debating it for some time actually internally. I think the, the main driver of the decision to move away, I keep kind of analogizing to like a build versus buy discussions, right? We have this instance of Magento. It's a self-hosted Magento. 
Um, so we're in the community, um, Magento 2.3, I think we're in now. And our instance is fairly highly customized at the code level, right? So we've got a lot of support. We had a senior developer in, in-house and with the business for the last four or five years. We've got an incredibly um, uh, development agency that we think really highly of and that we really do view as a true partner inside of our business. And yet, a good number of the, the time and effort of that whole development team is spent fixing bugs and, mm-hmm. try, you know, and so my view on where we're headed on in the Shopify experience is we're going to try to create some internal discipline around the whole idea of customizing the Shopify experience, right? Like I, I'm, I'm a very firm believer in the fact that like e-commerce doesn't have to be complicated. It's, it's all about removing friction and making it easy to do for your customers to do business with you, right? And my strong preference at this point in time, at least, is to buy what best in class looks like and, and pay um, another company to ensure that their product is currently best in class and fully functional with whatever changes Shopify is making at their code base level, right? What, what our CEO set a vision out a long time ago when I joined the firm was, he wants a tech stack that's stable and scalable and, and, sca- and scalable, not just in that it'll support our business needs as we grow, but scalable and stable in that as new technologies and new frameworks and new versions of things come out, we're constantly up to date, right? Like that there's not a, a X number of month upgrade cycle to get from 2.3 to 2.4 or 2.4 or 2.5. Well, like, by moving to Shopify, in theory, I think we should move away from that whole experience, right? Things should be handled for us. Shopify is pushing updates constantly inside of their code base, and we'll always be on the most modern version of things. Mm-hmm. You know, the analogy that he used to use was when PHP comes out with a new version of PHP, there's a cascading effect, right? They announced that Magento's got to update their code base. We've got to let it simmer for a while before we go and do our thing. And like, there's this constant discussion and debate about how much time should we be spending just worrying about kind of maintaining our existing code base versus building new features on top of that, right? From a feature set perspective. One of the, as we went and interviewed a bunch of agencies and ultimately selected a partner for this migration project, one of them said to us, you know, uh, what they see from people who go from Magento to Shopify is they go from being an IT business to an e-commerce business. Mm. That sort of resonated with me because yeah. of some of the pain that we've had about trying to keep our Magento instance current and up to date. So that's, that's kind of the current um, hope. And I'm also trying to go into that project with eyes wide open, knowing full well that probably 18 to 24 months from now, I'm going to be frustrated that we aren't customizing things. Right. So the grass looks really green right now over there. And so we're going to run over there and um the plan is to almost put ourselves in a little bit of a straitjacket and just put a really, really high bar, high threshold that says, if we want to customize at the code base level, the business case from a from a has to be really strong and really high. You know, the va- the value of doing so, it's got to be through the roof for us to say, yes, let's go customize that. Right. If you're going to change the color of a button or move things around in the front end, that's a, that's an easier business case to make. Um, so let's go by all means, let's go test and optimize and make sure we're we're serving the customer in as clean a fashion as possible. And we're focused on improvement and conversion rate through site speed optimization and some of the other kind of CRO initiatives. But if it if it if it involves meddling at the code base level, my instinct is going to be say, nope, let's not let's not touch that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I've been seeing also like pushback against um, like the, the, yeah, the headless movement in general. Is that level of customization really needed? How big of a company do you need to have that this is a benefit and yeah just just shouldering that that technical debt and the and the the, the burden there I, I love that statement that you shared about are we yeah moving from an it company to an e-commerce company because you can take those those same technical resources that feel like bogged down and get them working on things that feel really exciting and incremental and then just offload the the technical debt and the 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 code monkey in, in, in end effect to the shop. Yeah, when, when we went and we just did a big upgrade project because we had a lot of technical debt. So we had migrated to Magento 2 in November 2017 and had not done an upgrade since that time. So we were on 2.1 when I joined the business in 2019. To get us to 2.3 took over a year, a full year. Now we were also making improvements to the site along the way and, and some other things, but like there was a custom RMA module we had built and so we had to go rewrite and refactor that from the ground up because what that was built upon also had been changed and needed to get, it just, it just took too long. Yeah. It's just, you know, it, it, nothing should ever take that long if you mm. can avoid it. Now, the, you know, the, that our site is really stable and it has served us very well. The other thing that we were talking about just internally, you know, what the way I kept thinking about it was, and, and the initial conversation with the CEO was, Hey, if you and I were to go start a business today at this level of sales, and we knew 100% this is the revenue we could generate, and we were we were starting that business from scratch, I am 100% certain that we would choose Shopify to go do that. Yeah. And if you agree with me, then the only real question is, why aren't we doing that now? And the only answer to that is fear. It's fear of the unknown. It's It's risk associated with any kind of migration, and there's always going to be risk. But the real question then becomes like, how do we mitigate that risk as a leadership team and a management team? How do we select the right partners to make sure that, you know, the project's going to run smoothly, et cetera, et cetera. So that was a, that was a fun thought exercise, but it was, and the other question was that I put in front of him was at some point in time between the time you initially chose Magento and today, Shopify became the default solution for the e-commerce world. When did that happen? Mm. And why did it happen? And let's, let's have a healthy and robust debate about that. And, and try and figure out how that shift in, uh, in mindset among many in the community, you know, how does that apply to our business model today and where we're trying to go in the future, right? And so ultimately, I think it was a good decision. And, and actually, our senior internal developer who recently left us on the way out the door said, I think this is the best decision for you guys right now. So I, he, he even supported it and was knowing where we are and where we wanted to go, a lot of the reasons why we had chosen Magento had been kind of engineered out of the system by me over the last couple of years. So mm -hmm. really exciting times though. Can't wait to get it done. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And and I, I think it's such an interesting statement that fear is the thing that stops you. Cause it's, yeah, you have to just do this thought experiment. Like if we were starting from scratch, what would we do? And, yeah. and, and, you know, there's this kind of sunk cost fallacy like yeah. oh we've already invested this time and all everything in there but you just have to cut that away because then look at the opportunity cost um of that one year uh, upgrade right. that you're mentioning i mean what that's what you should be afraid of is is the opportunity cost on something yeah. like that what else could you have done in that year yes um, that you couldn't yeah. agree more and ultimately the you know was we sort of really debated it he came to the conclusion, he's like, you know, the thing, I guess the thing that he realized was there's never a good time to do something like this. Mm -hmm. If you're killing it and you're actually growing dramatically, it's like, whoa, don't touch anything, right? Everything's going great. 
if you're missing numbers and you're slower than you want it to be, oh, don't, don't touch anything. We're trying to claw back numbers. It's like sooner or later, you just come to the conclusion that this major decision that you've made should last the business from like three to five years, right? And you shouldn't be quick to pull the trigger on any kind of change because it's just the new greatest flavor of whatever, you know. But ultimately, I think looking at our Magento 2 instance, it has been four years or so that we've had it and it has served us well. You know, it's helped us really grow to the revenue and the volume that we're at, but it's just time. So we're really excited to get, get, we're about three weeks in already and the team's cranking and can't wait to get it done. Cool. Well, I'm wishing you a ton of luck and success with that. Thank you. Um, You're welcome. I I also saw, I'm going to dig up another tweet here. (laughs) (laughs) It's your worst nightmare. Come <laughs> All those things I shouldn't have said on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got, like I said, the D to C Twitter community is so open and uh, here's the price you pay for that. Openness. <laughs> it seemed to me that you were kind of flirting with the idea of, of owning some, some retail space. And I don't know, you know, if this is just kind of a, a twinkle in your eye at this point or, or, or where you're thinking about this, but it, it catches my attention because, we're definitely seeing that some, you know, some D2C players out there are opening up their own stores and their spaces a bit more and more. And I've got my kind of ideas about why that happens. But I think you were asking for some some experience if anyone else has done that. And what are your findings so far? What are you thinking about this topic? Yeah, it's been on my mental roadmap for some time now. And really, the I actually have a project this quarter to really flesh out and do a little bit more due diligence. And that was the the nature of that tweet was to try and solicit some other folks that I could speak with who have moved from D to C online only into a brick and mortar owned and operated retail experience. Um, I've had a number of conversations over the last couple of years, and I realized that kind of my head had gotten a little bit ahead of the rest of the leadership team. And so my, my project this this quarter is to have some deeper conversations and probably involve my CEO in a few of those and to you know put together a roadmap and then get aligned with senior leadership. So in my mind, the roadmap is for next year's budget, I'll probably put some money in the budget, start spending around Q3 of 2023 with the plan to launch our first kind of fully owned and operated retail store in 2024. Mm-hmm. I do think there's value there. The dynamics change and it, it, there's so much that we could learn by experimenting in things like placement and, you know, where in the, which markets do you go into? Do you focus on where your current penetration is the highest, where your, your, your selection of customers is, is the highest? You know, that's one thing about our specific brand is that targeting is really difficult for us. Mm-hmm. Every single human adult could have foot pain that we can help with. As you get a little bit older, we, we do skew just a little bit older, but in the last two years, we've actually skewed younger than we've historically skewed by kind of, I and what I attribute that to is just I'm spending a lot less money on purely retargeting to our existing customers um, and instead just letting the algorithms do their thing to find the right people and finding people that are raising their hands in Google search and Microsoft search and um, bringing them into the ecosystem. But I think, you know, in some of the conversations that I've had with some other brands, they have found that their online demographic and and their in-person demographic can be wildly different based on where you place that store, right? The other way that I think about the kind of simplistic framework is effectively you're paying yourself to put a permanent billboard up in that town, right? So not only are you attracting a different 
a potentially different type of buyer, someone who's maybe less willing to buy online. I know I'm I'm a pretty good example of that. When it comes to clothing, I'm a I'm a difficult fit. I'm six four and two fifty. Mm. You know, I wear like a large tall, and I have wide feet. So I prefer not to buy shoes online if I can avoid it because I'm just picky with the fit. So I'd much rather go into a store, spend an hour, try on five or six different styles, walk out with a pair in my hands. Um, when it comes to pants, oh my gosh, I almost never buy stuff online because there's just so many different variables in the way something's going to fit. And I'm just, I've had so many, I've been spurned so many times. That looks amazing. I buy it and it doesn't fit. And now I'm just got to, it's a pain to have to return stuff online, right? So that's another dynamic I think that, that we can think about. The other piece of it is the halo effect that it has in that metro area for online purchases. The fact that that store is there all the time, people can walk in. So, you know, I've, I've talked with some brands that have seen anywhere from 20 to 70% incremental order volume within that metro area by putting a store there. Mm-hmm. So what I'm trying to do is get a lot of validation from a lot of different brands chasing down kind of a full view of the P&L. Like what's, that, what's the level of investment you need to stand up a store? How long should it take? What, who, do I, who should I be talking to about that from a design and build perspective? How do we mitigate some of the risk? What's the best way to, do we need to dip our toe in or do we have to jump in with both feet? All that kind of information around a POS for the store. How do you inventory the store? How do you staff and train, you know, associates in the store? What are the kind of the attribution systems we can put in place to try to measure those things effectively? So trying, just trying to do that due diligence and then come back and get fully aligned with the senior leadership team. So we know that yep, this is the plan. In the next three years, the plan is to open up our first door and maybe a second, whatever that looks and feels like for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Th- I mean, that, that sounds like a super interesting challenge. And I, I think there are so many dimensions to it, like inventory, as you mentioned, I, you know, the question comes up like with this, this kind of uh, style expansion that you've done or product line expansion. And, you know, I'm sure you've got kind of some, I don't know how to say this. Well, I won't say best selling, but more common um, foot pains and and then kind of a long tail sure. of foot pains and yep. to the, to the economics pay off the same way in that store as they do on the digital shelf and, and so on. And the other thing to think about from our perspective is that we're we're fairly bearish and therefore not participating, for example, in Amazon. You know, we want to control the, the full user experience. Mm-hmm. So we don't sell on Amazon today. We have no real interest in doing a traditional wholesale retail model by, you know, um, delivering our product to Dick Sporting Goods, for example. They're an incredible retailer, one of my all-time favorites. But it's just not, you know, it's not where we want to go strategically. So an owned and operated store is really the next best distribution point for us to be able to grow awareness of the brand and grow our revenue and customer base in a, in a very strategic and thoughtful way. Yeah, definitely. And like the associate training you mentioned before, I think in a, in a specialty branch like yours, super important. Yeah. Th- thanks for sharing all that stuff. I think it's sure. so interesting. And, and to me, I, I just, I also wonder with the online only presence, you know, even though the the share of online retail keeps growing, I mean, let's say if you would peg it at landing at, you know, 20% or whatever, whatever the case might be, that's still 80% that's offline out there. And, right. um, it, and, you know, do you reach a certain point where you can't generate more demand with these online channels um, or you can't capture more demand or you're becoming too dependent on the channels, which I think has plagued a lot of direct-to-consumer brands lately. Yeah, it's a series of really interesting thought experiments. And and ultimately, you know, the big question is how do you grow brand awareness so, such that you're affecting the uh, every 
customer touch point within the ecosystem that you're playing in today, right? So we're spending quite a bit of money in traditional digital channels. It's Google and Microsoft and Facebook. Um, and those those things have all of their attendant, you know, click-through rates and CPMs and, and, and CPCs and, and conversion rates, et cetera. So the question then becomes, where else can you spend money that either is kind of upends and you know flips the table over from uh, changing the dynamic of the rest of that ecosystem or operates as an independent channel on its own, right? So direct mail is a really interesting opportunity for us, in my opinion, to go and print a catalog and get it in front of a bunch of people that look and, and, and behave similar to the way our existing customer base does, right? So that has a little bit of a digital halo effect because now people are in their homes and they're being, uh, they're getting raised, uh, the awareness of Kuru's existence is, you know, landing in their lap. And stores is another way, right? It's a way not only of having that try-on experience, you know, and maybe they continue to come back in person and, and buy. The other thing that what really changes there is the um, associated cost structure from like a return rate perspective, right? What are the folks that I've talked to, return rate online is, you know, five to 10x what it is in store, right? Yeah. It's, it's low single digits in store yeah. because you're actually making sure that it fits. You're removing the first potential barrier from a cost, from a return rate perspective there. Uh, returns and exchanges, w- we offer free shipping every single direction, right? So when someone exchanges a product for us, it's we're paying for shipping three times. We pay to ship it to you, we pay to we get it back to us, and we pay to send the, the, the replacement pair out, right? And so not that that's a bad thing. It's all built into the model, and we're still profitable despite yeah. offering that level of service. But anything we can do to kind of introduce new variables into that system and, and mm-hmm. take better care of our customers, that's what we're most interested in. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I was already thinking earlier when you were saying how you like you're a big and tall guy and, and you you struggle with the fit online and so on. You'd rather do that in store. And I was thinking, oh, if only every customer would sort of feel that way, because I think there's so many people who are willing to order it in three sizes and yeah, or and three colors and just send back what they didn't like or whatever. So yeah. yeah. You were just mentioning some of your digital channels and um I mean, I'd be curious what you th- what you what you're thinking with Google these days too. But uh, what's up with Facebook? Because um, <laughs> there's like a lot of frustration with Facebook this year in particular, but really the last what is that 12, 18 months since yeah. uh, since Apple rolled out, rolled out their iOS 14 and so on. So speaking as you know, uh, a survey size of one. <laughs> what's what's your take? What's your take on 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 Facebook right now from an advertiser perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think um, you've covered this in the past on the cast in multiple different ways. Your attribution um, cast was incredible. That's actually how I stumbled across you and, and reached out, and we had that initial conversation. I really, really loved the the smart and methodical way that you kind of covered attribution and. And, and clearly, targeting is more difficult in Facebook today than it's ever been. And attribution, Facebook is challenged with really being able to attribute the sales that it thinks it's driving into the system. It's trying to make some estimates and and use um, machine learning in a way that can be more thoughtful. But you know, I've had this this theory or this uh, you know, if I were Mark Zuckerberg or someone at Facebook, what I would be doing right now to try to kind of calm the savage beast and the savage beast being the D2C or the, you know, e-com marketing community mm. would be to open the spigot back up on the organic reach side, right? You know, there's all kinds of data about how far organic posts by brands used to be able to travel within their um, follower list and how those things had become constrained over, over the years because they wanted to drive revenue and, and into the order and ads mechanism, right? 
And I think there's a balancing act there. If I were in Facebook shoes, you know, you still want to do what you can to fix things. It's not happening yet, right? There's a lot of frustration just this week. Overnight, a couple nights ago, Facebook randomly turned off a bunch of best performing ads. It turns out as of this morning that a lot of people's um, Cappy integration broke as well. Mm -hmm. So like there's just constant ongoing monitoring and frustration within the D2C ad buying and media buying community with Facebook's performance. And I believe that it would go a long way if they literally said, not only just do it, but tell people you're going to do it. Hey, we're still trying to figure this out. While we're trying to figure this out, we're going to open up the space. We're going to double the amount of reach that you can get in your organic um, posts as a brand, right? Because you built this, you invested heavily in our platform. You have got us to the point where we are as a business to this point. And we want to make sure we're taking good care of you along the way. And that's not happening so far. It's just, it's, they're trying to fix what is broken. And it's been, to your point, it's been 18 months. And all I keep hearing is how, they're constantly changing things in the ads interface. I mean, this is not a place that I spend a lot of time today. I'm thinking about it more from like a level or two up. Yeah. But just as a former kind of community manager on my own and someone who's active in social, I think um, promoting the fact that you can give brands more reach on the organic side, I think would go a long way from, from a relationship building perspective between e-commerce brands and Facebook today. Yeah. I, I love the idea. Um, I'm just afraid, you know, once they show that they can, then, uh, then they can't walk it back anymore. Yeah, or it's the tricky part. Definitely but, a fine line to walk on that one. But there, but there's, you know, they, they pay a price either way. Cause there's a lot of conversation. I don't know to what extent people really put their money where their mouth is, but there's a lot of conversation about people, um, reallocating that budget toward Google ads or somewhere where they're, they're feeling more satisfied. Has that changed um, your investment level at all? Or are you just kind of weathering the storm? Uh, It's not changed our investment level because we were not heavy. We're not as heavy as most traditional D2C brands in Facebook at at any point since I've been here in part, because we lack the multi-touch attribution solution uh, to really understand the the relative contribution of that channel for us, we have that now. So we've been um, we've been working with Rockerbox for the last six months or so. I love the system; it's super helpful in having us helping us to understand the relative contribution of that channel. And there is more that we could be doing there for sure. And because of the nature of our customer base and the problem that we solve, we heavy uh, our investment into paid search and shopping engine, because we get these people that are self-identifying by typing words into the the, the magic box in Google, right? So people searching for shoes for plantar fasciitis or comfortable shoes for walking or comfortable shoes for nurses, those kind of keywords drive massive, massive volume our way. So we're, 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 we're really, really good at demand capture and we need to figure out how to move up the funnel and be a better marketing organization in the demand generation mode. Mm-hmm. I'm just looking at the time and I think we're in a little tight on the time box. So, cause it's, I, I, I love to keep talking a lot further, but I, there's one question I really want to ask you before I let you go. Sure. Um, cause I think it's so interesting. You sometimes open up your Catalinly, uh, for like open office hours. Um, and people can, can chat to you for any reason, as long as it's not a pitch. So, I'm curious, like, what has that been like for you? What kind of conversations have you had or what it's sort of like speed dating or like what's the the best or the worst things that have happened from 
that experiment so far? It's been so good. Yeah, it's been, I've had, in part, I've done it to try to combat my own old man tendencies, which is like, hey, get off my lawn. You know, I'm just very skeptical about pitches and yeah. um, just generally I'm, um, it's, it's, I'm, I'm, a, I'm kind of a little bit of a contradiction on that front. I'm definitely an extrovert. I love having these kind of one-on-one conversations. I find a ton of value in them. And I, it's been, it's almost forced me to be more open. So I'm just, I walk into every one of these meetings as like, you know, an open book and just being open and transparent and willing to have whatever conversation. And I'd say 90% of them have been incredibly valuable to me. So it's been a very worthwhile exercise, I would say, both in kind of pushing my own boundaries, but also just in building one-on-one relationships with people that I didn't have the chance to chat with previously. You know, you get to know someone on, on Twitter and it's an avatar and it's a lot of, you know, typed and, and words. And it's not the same as spending time to actually get to know one even over Zoom. Right. Yeah. And so um, I, it's been a, a worthwhile exercise. I plan to continue it. I'm going to promote every time the calendar slows down a little bit, I'll promote it again on LinkedIn or on Twitter or on both. The first time when I put it out there, my calendar filled up for five weeks That's in about crazy, two days. Yeah. <laughs> so 25, you know, 25 random people, some of whom were former coworkers of mine from 10 years ago to different one of those roles we talked about already. It was just great to catch up with them, you know? Um, and some were just folks that I had already had, We, you know, like you and I had had, right? We'd had a few interactions on Twitter or through Twitter DMs. And it's like, you get a chance to put a, a voice and a, and a face with that online persona. And it's just, I find it incredibly valuable. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really cool initiative and I'm glad to hear that you keep doing it. We're just about time, so I'm sadly going to have to let you go. Um, just wanted to ask, is there anything that you want to uh, plug or promote, or where can we find you? No, nothing that I can think of. I just, I really appreciate the chance to speak with you today, Mike. It's been great. Um, I'm, I'm a huge admirer of the podcast. I can't wait for your next, uh, your next podcast. It's on, on my short list of five to ten ecom podcasts I listen to every week. When they, every, every time something goes live, I'm listening to you and and. A handful of others. So um, really honored that you invited me on and um, nothing special with regard to crew. Just if you've got foot pain or know someone that you love and care about that has some foot pain, give us a shot. Um, we have free shipping both directions and um, we do ship internationally. It's a very small part of the business, but mostly to Canada, but it, we will, we'll ship them anywhere. I'm happy to um, send some off to a loved one that you care about. And if you've got questions about what style might be best or what our best sellers are, just hit me up on Twitter. You can find me at Sean McGinnis. On Twitter, my DMs are open. Um, so, you know, send me a direct message. Happy to answer any questions that anyone might have. Well, thanks for your time, Sean, and for sharing all this um, information and experience with us. It's been really interesting. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growing E-Commerce. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider sharing it with coworkers, friends, or within your professional network. We really appreciate it. This podcast is produced by Smarter E-Commerce. To learn more, visit smarter-ecommerce.com.